Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're a member of the Public Health Podcast Network, the Virginia Audio Collective, the World Podcast Network, and the Family Podcast Network. And we're on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM and 8.20 a.m. across Central Virginia and 16.50 a.m. in Hampton Rose and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. That's pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Today, we're excited to be joined by Amber Edgid, Chief Operating and Nursing Officer at Chesapeake Regional Healthcare, for a conversation about her work, some recent recognition she earned, and more. So welcome to the show, Amber. Thanks for being with us my pleasure to join you today. Let's get underway by learning a bit more about you. We mentioned that you have dual leader roles at Chesapeake Regional Healthcare, which you joined in 2017. We know you've been a nurse for more than a quarter century, and we also know that you recently became a fellow of the American Organization for Nursing Leadership. So congratulations on that accomplishment. Thank you. Yeah, of course. That very brief introduction, what are the essential things about your professional life and who you are as a person that you'd like people to know? I think that the essential things about my profession is I am very passionate about nursing and being an advocate for both patient outcomes and the nursing profession. I have always wanted to be a nurse since the age of five, and it's really such a honor to be able to serve in a profession that's so meaningful, and I've had you know, an amazing opportunity to be a part and take part in the healing of others. And that is just, nursing is just a, such a rewarding profession. So for me, from a professional perspective, it's the passion to serve others so from a nursing and patient care perspective, but also in a leadership role in those that I serve and advocating for their voices too, that drives me. And the roles of Chief Operating Officer and Chief Nursing Officer each have significant leadership duties. I wonder if you can tell us about how those positions are distinct, where they might overlap, and how you manage the responsibilities of both. Absolutely. So from a Chief Nursing Officer perspective, it is the overall outcome of the provision of patient care, of driving best practices, ensuring environment that is one driven by quality and safe practices and always, always by the latest evidence that we have available to best care for patients. So there is a lot of responsibility that comes with the chief nursing officer perspective, but it's also with the chief nursing officer perspective is to continue to evolve and promote nursing professional development and encouraging leadership development from the bedside to the boardroom. So there's that part of just the nursing piece of my role. But then there's the chief operating officer part of my role that deals more with service lines, ancillary departments like radiology, cardiology, pharmacy, laboratory, developing cardiac and oncology service lines, building like our new critical care tower and our new cancer center, and then building out into the community from imaging centers to pharmacies in the community. So while I have a breadth of responsibility that's operational and development and a lot of, of initiating strategic projects, it definitely overlaps with nursing and why I think that the CNO COO role combined works so well together is because everything we do in healthcare affects a patient. And at the side of every patient is a nurse or another healthcare provider. So it all intersects 
from a patient care perspective. And that's what's most important to me is that we serve our community in the best way that we can and we serve our employees in the best way that we can. So having an opportunity to be a voice across the organization by having a dual role allows a lot of bandwidth and it prevents a lot of things that may be lost in communication when those positions are separated. So instead of having a COO and a CNO maybe working on separate things, you have all the right groups at the table from the beginning, from ancillary services and nursing that allow us for the best planning. So I just, I have this awesome leadership team at Chesapeake Regional and, you know, with our nursing leaders and our operational leaders, every strategy, every operations plan, we're all at the table. So it's such a more collaborative and streamlined work environment to get to the best outcome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. So we just left the month of May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. In preparing for this podcast, I came across an article describing initiatives you undertook to support hospital workers, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. For instance, you helped establish so-called Me15 rooms, where hospital team members could take a mental health break and even get a massage. You also worked to ensure employees had access to counseling and placed to focus on mindful meditation for staff during shifts. It's well known that the pandemic took a physical and emotional toll on so many people. Many clinicians faced burnout and more. As we think about mental wellness and reducing stigma for people, including caregivers, to get help, can you tell me more about your philosophy in that regard? Yes. So I think that while we have always had a focus on employee wellness, I think that the pandemic certainly brought the need for enhanced efforts to the forefront of all of our minds across the healthcare industry. You know, while others, you know, were able to stay home and work, healthcare workers got dressed and came in every day to face an unknown battle. So I think that that mental, emotional, and physical tool seemed across the healthcare industry has brought that to, you know, the forefront of all of our future planning and really helped us look at it at a more heightened level. And during the pandemic, we did take immediate action to make sure that we had chaplain services available for our team members. As you mentioned, meditation, me 15 rooms where you can step away for 15 minutes in a quiet space with multiple natural healing elements to help alleviate stress or pressure. And today we continue with me 15 rooms. We continue to accentuate our wellness program through our own availability of behavioral health counselors when needed for specific issues that happen on a unit. And I think that the importance of employee wellness moving forward is something that all organizations are or will be focusing on. I know in our organization, our employee wellness is on our strategic plan and how we engage our employees to make sure that there is a good work-life balance, that they have resources they need, even if they need help with things that they're struggling outside of the work environment. How do we match them with resources like employee assistance programs that allows them to best cope, whether it's something they're dealing with at home or in the work environment? And I think that, you know, healthcare workers sometimes it's hard to just leave everything at the door when you walk out of the hospital. If you've had a really bad day or been involved in something, you know, we're involved in life and death every day. And that can be really hard to forget about when you walk out the door. And so sometimes there's crossover into your personal life, you know, once you leave work for the day. So we want to make sure that we talk about employee wellness 
in a way that promotes healthy behaviors, healthy activities, not just for mental health, but we want to focus on workforce violence because that has a lot of effect on the mental health of our employees. And we've seen a uptick in workplace violence. And we have our own workplace violence committee right now adjusting policies, procedures, and training for our teams so that they can better address the escalation strategies, but also we can take a more firm action on our stance against the where our employees are treated and talked to. So we have things that we've just never dealt with that have caused us to look at employee wellness in a different way in its mind, its body, its spirit, its finances. How do we prepare people for retirement? That's a part of wellness is having financial wellness is also a part of overall employee wellness. So I think that, you know, we want to look at it as a complete picture, although mental health is a very important part of it. There are other parts of wellness that feed into that mental well-being. So we want to be well-rounded in our approach and strategic in our approach, and that's why it's on our strategic plan as one of our initiatives to address and complete for the next five years. Awesome. And my next question kind of ties into this, and I think you might have answered some of it already, but VHHA and many of its hospitals recently signed onto a first-in-the-nation compact called All in for Healthcare, Caring for Caregivers, that is focused on ensuring that clinicians have access to mental wellness resources and that barriers to practice are reduced for clinicians who may have previously sought counseling or mental health services. In fact, legislation was approved this year to remove some of those barriers in relationship to the licensure process. Chesapeake Regional has been a leader in this work. From your perspective, why is this valuable and important? I believe that this work is valuable and it's important because we want to encourage people to get help before it's too late. You know, we saw a lot of suicide in the healthcare industry during the pandemic because of stress burnout, maybe underlying mental health issues that were accentuated by the pandemic. But whatever the cause, we want to make mental health as easy as talking about managing your diabetes under your insurance plan. It shouldn't be a stigma. And we don't want to make it a stigma for our healthcare workers. We don't want to discourage our healthcare workers from getting treatment needed because of fear of reporting to a licensure bureau or fear of being able to seek gainful employment because of a past mental health crisis or maybe not even a crisis. Everybody has rough spots in their life at some time, you know, if they need some type of assistance, it shouldn't hinder their progress or label them as a professional moving forward. Thank you so much. From what I've read, combating human trafficking and raising awareness is something you're passionate about. This is something VHHA has been engaged in through working with hospital members on this issue and with the multi-state regional interdisciplinary collaborative working to disrupt human trafficking. If you would, could you tell us about the work you've been involved with to develop screening tools and healthcare-specific training sessions for providers to help spot human trafficking in clinical settings? Yes. So as part of my doctorate work for Winsburg University, I undertook the doctoral principle of advocacy, and I decided to focus my efforts on helping healthcare providers have screening tools and education sessions that will help recognize victims of human trafficking. And what brought about that work was through research and understanding that at the time of my research, that many human trafficking victims report to emergency departments or hospitals and are often diagnosed as other sorts of trauma, but not actually 
recognized as a human trafficking victim or rescued. So we had a failure to rescue issue in healthcare that was significant and it was all based on knowledge and awareness. So through my doctoral work, I was able to work with a team of healthcare professionals from the FBI, local police agents, EMS, ED physicians, ED nurses, and then we created a tool, an assessment tool and education that allowed us to uh, really recognize victims for various signs, not always health signs of, you know, not having any ID as being a red flag, of really alerting physicians, EMS, when they arrive on scene that it might be a human trafficking situation and how to look for those red flags when assessing patients not just physically, but psychosocially. So we developed education, a treatment plan, a process for a patient to silently say that they need help by placing a marker on a cup in the bathroom so that there's a way to silently say, I need help without saying it for a patient. So we created a lot of great screening tools that were very successful in helping to increase our recognition of human trafficking victims during my doctoral work. And we were able to recognize and rescue several victims and help them get to a recovery. So it was a very meaningful work and something I'm very passionate about. And I continued that passion past my postdoctoral work as continuing on as a board member. I'm on the board for the HER shelter in Chesapeake. So it's really meaningful work to be a part of the shelter and sit on the board, which is for domestic violence and human trafficking victims. So I continue the work through an advocacy through that agency as well. Awesome. That's incredible work. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you again for being with us today. Before we let you go, we do have a tradition on the Patients Come First podcast to ask our guests a pair of personal questions to give listeners a sense of who you are beyond the work you do. To keep things interesting, we have a list of 10 mystery questions. So please choose two numbers between 1 and 10, and I'll ask you the corresponding questions. Okay. Two numbers between the numbers 1 and 10. Uh, Let's see. How about 6 and 7? Awesome. Number six, in the hypothetical scenario that you had one-time access to a time machine with limits, you can either travel 100 years into the past or 100 years into the future. Which direction do you choose and why? I would choose 100 years into the past because I love American history and I would like to go back in time and witness some of the historical events from 100 years ago. And number seven, you could choose one superpower to have or any one skill to instantly master. What would it be and why? I would, oh, that's a tough one. So one skill or superpower that I could have and master, what would it be? If I could have one superpower, huh. That's a tough one. I'm going to have to, can I have a minute to think about that? Yes, of course. Definitely. Take as much time as you need. Or skill. You said one superpower or skill. Yes. I think that if I could master one thing, it would be being an artist. So I love to look at art, but I can't draw a straight line. So if I could master one skill, it would be to draw and paint something beautiful. I love looking at things, but I, as I said, I can't draw a straight line. I am on the same wavelength as you. I That's a great answer, and I completely agree. I can also not draw for anything, so love that answer. <laughs> and that will bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are released. We want to once again thank our guest, Amber Edged, for joining us today. So thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you for having me and have a great day.